0: For Martin Scorsese, the mob has been, you could say, a kind of muse. And back in the 90s, he was at the peak of his mobbiness as a filmmaker. Is that a word? I like it. He just released the blockbuster film Goodfellas. He was in search of his next homage to organized crime. It was during this era in the acclaimed director's career that he decided to switch it up, to try something new. Instead of the mean streets of Brooklyn, Martin's next mobster piece would take place in Las Vegas. Amy Nicholson is a film critic and hosts the podcast, Unschooled.
1: There's this look to like the mafia movies that are set in the East Coast. You know, it's like dark streets, dark rooms, lots of Italian restaurants, people kind of hiding and people doing sort of small scale retributions that get really violent.
0: But Vegas was visually totally different. You have mobsters in suits in C-suite offices having lunch with senators. Vegas, through the eyes of Scorsese, is where you went to be legit. It's where a criminal could operate out in the open, where he didn't have to be an angel, but the cops wouldn't hassle him. The story here, if this is the American city, I mean, they're talking about the new Vegas. You know, the sense of Vegas and what it represented represents chance, luck, you know, everything wide open place for, at that time, the old Vegas in a way, a place for gangsters, hustlers, gamblers, and that sort of thing. Um, and it had a kind of romance to it. A kind of romance to it. Vegas, you know, it's a place that lures you to be bad. I mean, the opening scene is our main character, Sam Ace Rostein, coolly walking out of the casino to his champagne-colored glitzy ride, a Cadillac Eldorado Biarritz. The glamour and power Sam seemed to possess in those opening scenes feels superhuman, like this can't be a real person, but actually he was. The film is based on a true story. Sam is modeled after Frank Lefty Rosenthal, a real mobster who ran the Stardust Casino in the 70s and 80s, but we'll get more into that later. Anyway, in this scene, Sam is in a coral suit jacket and pink shirt, white pants, quite the look if you ask me. And he's talking about love.
2: When you love someone, you've got to trust them. There's no other way. You've got to give them the key to everything that's yours. Otherwise, what's the point? For a while, I believed that's the kind of love I had.
0: He gets into his car and then boom, it blows up. a ball of smoke and fire curl up from the incinerated car. So, I mean, Scorsese's romance? It's not for the faint of heart. But quickly, after the opening credits, we're settled back in time, pre-explosion, and we see Sam, who is played by Robert De Niro, lighting a cigarette as he narrates his story.
2: Before I ever ran a casino or got myself blown up, Ace Rothstein was a hell of a handicapper. I can tell you that. I was so good that whenever I bet, I could change the odds for every bookmaker in the country. I'm serious. I had it down so cold that I
0: was given paradise on earth. His paradise on earth? The Tangiers. One of the biggest casinos in Vegas. Maybe the most ostentatious. And the film places a critical moment in Vegas into sharp relief. Mobsters began opening up shop in Vegas in the 1950s. And it became part of the city's legacy. It defined the way gambling operated in the state for decades. Nicky, Joe Pesci's character, says it would be the last time street guys like them would ever be given anything that valuable again. And just a sidebar on Nicky, Nicky Santoro is based on the real-life Anthony Spilotro. Nicky is an enforcer sent from the Chicago mob to be the muscle for Sam and just make sure everything runs smoothly. But back to what I was saying. The exposition in the beginning of the film has almost a religious tone to it. I mean, after Sam is blown up, he's seen going through a Dante's Inferno-like fire. You'd think he was the patron saint of Las Vegas or something. And then there's the language. For guys like me, Las Vegas washes away your sins. It's like a morality car wash. Morality car wash. Has a nice ring to it. Like, that's the one that's $10 more, you know, wax included and absolution of your murders. To be fair, Vegas had that reputation. They called it the city of second chances. It was a city where you could start over, clean slate, or so they say.
3: They moved to Las Vegas and they said, you know what, here's a chance for us to go legit, to use us, the skills that we've learned in the criminal world in a legitimate way.
0: That's Jeff Schumacher. He's vice president of exhibits and programs for the Mob Museum in Las Vegas.
3: And that's exactly what they did.
0: Yeah, I mean, bring criminals to run casinos. What could possibly go wrong? They have great credentials with all those illegal gambling halls and bootlegging booze. In this episode, we'll dive into the tropes of the film. The mob boss is the anti-hero. How the setting turned the tables on the typical Western. And how to this day, the problematic backstory of Vegas is celebrated. Even though, you know, it came through stealing tax dollars and murder. We're gonna explore how Hollywood's portrayal of the mafia in Vegas helped to cement its image as the epicenter of gambling, crime, and vice. And what does our romance with mobsters, you know, putting up casino posters in our dorm rooms, what does it say about us as a society? I'm Brent Holmes, and you're listening to Spectacle Las Vegas. Before we get back into Scorsese's Vegas, we need to tell you the basis for this whole story. You know, how Vegas went from a train stop between Salt Lake City and Los Angeles to one of the top international destinations in the world, and how the mob had a hand in that. So there's a year that sticks out in Vegas history, 1931. Two things happened then. Nevada legalized gambling and the Hoover Dam was being built.
3: Build a dam in the wilderness, and
2: the world will beat a path to it. For many centuries, this was a lonely canyon, unseen and untouched by man, scorched by a desert sun, scolded by an angry river slashing its way to the Mother
0: Sea. All of a sudden, Vegas wasn't just some place along the train route. It was a stop, a destination.
1: And then, of course, as soon as the dam is finished, you know, you flip a switch and then boom, like there's Las Vegas, there's lights, there's lights everywhere. And the town's like signature becomes like light bulbs and neon and you get this look.
0: The population ballooned. It quintupled in size by 1950. And who are they? Mostly construction dudes looking for a good time. Jeff again.
3: When Nevada legalized gambling in 1931, that's great. Who's going to run these casinos? Who's going to run these operations? It can only be people who know how to do it.
0: Casinos seemed like a genius idea. It's like a palace in the desert, everything at your fingertips gambling, drinking, dancing. And who knows how to run a casino? Mobsters.
3: They're typically coming in with a rap sheet, so inherently, Nevada needed these individuals to run these casinos correctly, but they also had to deal with their past.
0: The Mafia's footprint in Vegas doesn't start to meaningfully grow until a decade or so later when Bugsy Siegel shows up and builds the Flamingo in 1946. That Flamingo looked a lot different than the Vegas we think of now. The Neon marquee wasn't very loud, just the name, Flamingo. The pool had grass around it, palm trees, bright umbrellas, cute little bungalows. Kind of a Palm Springs look. This is the Vegas we often see on film. I mean, there's this movie, Bugsy, with Warren Beatty and Annette Bening. In it, they make it seem like Bugsy is hit by a bolt of inspiration just standing on the side of the road. I got it!
2: I got it! It came to me like a vision. Like a religious epiphany.
0: Even though Bugsy put the flamingo on the map, he can't be credited with creating it. And he certainly didn't found Las Vegas as we know it. He brought in a new era. A post-depression, post-bootleg era. A mob era. These gangsters who had cut their teeth running illegal poker games also made a killing during Prohibition selling illegal booze. And they needed somewhere to park all that cash.
3: You know, these guys who were scrounging for 10s and 20s on the streets of New York, now involved in, in bootlegging, were making thousands. They were making hundreds of thousands of dollars. They went from street hoodlums to millionaires. And as a result, they were able to invest in things like casino operations. They're looking for places they can operate without being raided, without being constantly hassled by the police.
0: Casino the film condenses like almost 20 years into three hours. It presents a stylized, romantic view of mobsters in control, operating out in the open. They're not depicted that much differently from the way we dramatize the lives of shrewd politicians on screen. In Casino, A state senator is just another kind of gangster. They're out for themselves. The only difference is the blood is a lot more obvious on the mobster's hands than the politicians. Jess says the film isn't that far off from what actually happened. I mean, the names are changed, events embellished. But all in all, the film captured a turning point for the mob in the way they did business.
3: If you're looking at a movie like Goodfellas or uh or even The Godfather, what you see are the traditional ways that the mob made money. They were extorting people, they were robbing trucks, they were, you know, bookmaking, all kinds of the, the things that you hear about, you know, what I what I kind of call street crime, right? And what you saw with Las Vegas was an opportunity for the mob to make a lot of money. I mean, way more money than they'd ever seen before, really, by skimming just a a relative percentage of the casino's profits, uh, they were able to send home bags of money that were, were, you know, life-changing for some of these folks in the Midwest and wherever else they were located.
0: Las Vegas was where you went to get rich. And along with making us legit comes cash. Tons of it. I mean, what do you think we're
2: doing out here in the middle of the desert? It's all this money.
0: That morality car wash that Sam spoke of earlier, the wash part was key. It required a lot of work to keep up the facade of legitimacy, of, hey, we might have a rap sheet, but we're playing by the rules, wink, wink. You see it in a scene of Sam talking about the journey the money takes from the floor to the back of the house. It's like he's walking a factory floor. Everything is precise, meticulous, white. We're
2: the only winners. The players don't stand a chance. And their cash flows from the tables, to our boxes, through the cage, and into the most sacred room in the casino. The place where they add up all the money, the Holy of Holies
0: account room. Holy, sacred. I mean, you'd think he was walking through the Vatican, which is kind of the grossest part to me. Like it's just a repository for gambling addicts' money and he wants to deify it there's this sense that Sam has the lid screwed on real tight. The movie shows the world of mobster Las Vegas as something ordered, controlled. Amy again.
1: You know, it's all shots of, like, the Las Vegas lights. You know, the neon. But the camera is so close to the lights that what you actually see isn't just, like, disorder and color and chaos. You see, like, rows and rows and rows of regimented bulbs, you know, all doing their job. As though the thing that keeps Vegas alight is this order that, like, Sam is aspiring to.
0: That order, that keeping on top of all his P's and Q's, it's important because the casino, it's a house of cards. When you've got an illegal operation, one pair of loose lips can bring it all crashing down. If you live in Vegas, there's a phrase you sometimes hear. You know, maybe when you're fed up with big corporations running a strip, that Las Vegas was better when the mob ran it. You've no idea how many old white ladies I've heard say this.
1: You know, it's funny. Like, you still have this debate in Las Vegas today. You know, like, papers like the Las Vegas Sun talk about it in their pages about how in the city it's almost become a cliche there to say that, you know, the town was better when the mafia was in charge. That the mafia at least lived in Las Vegas and loved Las Vegas and helped the people of Las Vegas— I mean, they did
0: skim, so Nevada did lose some money. But hey, they built hospitals, donated to local universities.
1: It was a part of Las Vegas, as compared to today, where Vegas is run by, like, CEOs of conglomerates who, like, barely ever visit.
0: That era was all about personal touch. They might know your name, might comp you a buffet. They took care of the guys, you know? They give big tips,
3: right? So They were uh, understanding of, that giving a $100 tip to a a bellman or whatever would change that guy's day. So that does make them appealing in a way that they're the common man who remembers where it came from.
0: There's a scene, about 30 minutes into the film, where Sam's girlfriend Ginger, played by Sharon Stone, is walking the floor, working her own angle.
2: Ginger had the hustler's code. Take one for you. Thank you. She knew how to take care of people. And that's what Vegas is
0: all about.
1: 6800 Thanks.
0: Kickback City. Have a good
2: night.
0: And you just see these shots of Ginger wadding up $100 bills into perfect squares and handing them out to everyone.
2: She took care of the dealers, pit bosses, floor managers. But mostly, she took care of the valet parkers.
0: Amy points out that Casino is one of the rare movies from the point of view of the workers.
1: When you have these scenes where like Ginger is handing out hundred dollar bills to like guys all over the casino, especially like the the blue-collar workers. Casinos from the point of view of the people who like run the casinos and work at the casinos. You know, it seems to care about the valet more than I think any film I've ever seen about Las Vegas does.
0: The benevolent overlords of the past. It's a stereotype that still rings true today for some people. They're not your faceless CEOs who wouldn't know the valet from a dealer on the floor. And films like casino help cement this idea by humanizing mobsters you feel like well at least mobsters are good to their own
1: and i think when you see scenes like you know sam and ginger being sure to take care of the people there it kind of makes me sad that we no longer live in a las vegas that feels for the working man i mean i have to say like i would prefer the vegas of like four dollar steak and egg breakfasts to like The Vegas of Bobby Fule charging you $40 for the exact same thing, you know?
0: A Las Vegas for the working man. There's this feeling to Casino, and in the way we look back at the mob in Vegas. Fraud, I know, but nevertheless real.
3: There's no question that there is a, a sense among some people watching mob movies, that these are sometimes thought of as like Robin Hood characters. They're sort of pushing against the status quo. through something that people can identify with. Like, I'm this person who lives this very normal life, and I I admire someone who's a mobster who's willing to take chances, who's willing to take risks, who's uh, getting his due one way or another.
0: According to Jeff, these films want us to see their side, the mob side.
3: We start rooting for the bad guy because we sympathize with him because we've seen his story. Maybe he was had a very poor childhood uh, or, you know, had some bad things happen. And you root for them to actually have some success, some wealth, some some happiness.
0: And in many ways, Vegas was a place where the mob was accepted. You had mobsters like Mo Dalitz get lauded like their model citizens.
3: He came uh, to Nevada and after like 20 years here, he was named like civic leader of the year. He won awards. He got the key to the city. Everybody loved Mo, And, you know, that was the way Las Vegas was really accepting of those folks in a way that you would not likely see in other city.
0: Mo Dalitz might have been beloved, but Vegas, in its roots, is pioneer country. And you see it in Casino, where they literally call the locals cowboys. But, you know, not in a nice way. Scorsese felt, with the setting of the film in Las Vegas, Casino is in many ways a Western. I mean, it checks a lot of the boxes. The desert landscape, the armed outlaws, the Western frontier. By 1983, 86, um, in my mind, it became something like an urban Western where it was really the end of the old Wild West, the real end of the Wild West in a way, where things were wide open. Um, and I figured that it had to be a picture where you could have these characters go through a real um, uh, breadth of a story, uh, the, the depth of a story. There's one scene that really hits this home. It's when Sam and Nicky meet in the middle of the desert. At this point in the story, Nikki has become kind of a liability. He's a loose cannon, and he's drawing a lot of bad attention to the casino. Sam has complained about Nikki's behavior, and it got back to Nikki, who isn't happy. I mean, Nikki isn't one for constructive criticism. And I mean, the setting. Meeting in the
2: middle of the desert always made me nervous. It's a scary place. I
0: knew about the holes in the desert, of course, and everywhere I looked, there could have been a hole. The holes were for dead bodies. So Sam is standing there, smoking a cigarette in the middle of the desert. Mountains behind him, not a person or a place visible for miles. You almost hear that sting that plays in westerns before the other guy shows up for the duel.
2: Normally, my prospects of coming back alive from a meeting with Nicky were 99 out of 100. But this time, when I heard him say a couple of hundred yards down the road, I gave myself
1: 50/50. We've had kind of this build up of fear of the desert. You know, it's a place full of corpses and bodies. The way that Scorsese even shoots Las Vegas in the middle of the desert is almost like Las Vegas is this magical glowing city. It's almost like heaven in the middle of dark blackness where like nothing exists. And so it's in this area that the film has been telling us the whole time is is scary, a place that's untouched, a place that where nobody's in charge.
0: It's this barren, desolate, seemingly lawless land that Sam and Nikki roll up to.
1: I mean, you're almost watching like sand that has never been touched by tire tracks. You kind of expect like a tumbleweed to roll across the desert. And it feels like a Wild West showdown. It's funny, in a place this dry, when Nikki turns to Sam and he says, you know, without me, you wouldn't even exist here. It's almost like he's saying, I am the water that keeps you alive in this desert. You know, do not mess with me because you need me to survive. And you're just surrounded by a look of a train where you cannot survive without, like, help, without some sort of thing keeping you there.
0: The Wild West mentality. This exciting opportunism on display across a lawless West. That attitude defined, you could say, the way the mob approached legitimizing their businesses. For example, with the Gaming Commission. Like Jeff says, you don't have to be in the mob to act like a mobster. And there were a lot of shady dealings going on. We won't get into the bureaucracies of running a casino. But let's just say, people with rap seats like Sam's couldn't get a gaming license. So they'd give him titles like head of PR, even though he was really running the whole place. It was one of those things with the gaming commission like, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But Sam eventually gets on the bad side of the commission. He doesn't agree to do one of them a favor. And that commissioner, well, he isn't going to help Sam out anymore.
1: You have Sam in Casino calling Vegas a morality car wash. You know, a place where, like, for guys like him, Vegas washes away his sins. But the thing that we see in Casino is that's actually just wishful thinking. You know, it's not true. Like, Sam's history follows him to Las Vegas. And it eventually, you know, catches up with him. When you were
2: my guest, Mr. Chairman, Senator, at the Tangiers Hotel, did you not promise me that I would I have a fair ne- I was
1: never your guest at the You were Tangiers. never my
2: guest? I That's never right, comped man. you? I don't comp you at least two or three times a month at the Tangiers? I'd like to answer that.
1: I mean, it's funny. There is that scene where he's arguing with the gaming commissioners. where When Sam is, like, yelling at the gaming commissioners, almost as though he's their equal. He is just, you know, I'm a paying taxpayer of this town, that kind of vibe.
0: You'd think he was in a back room in Brooklyn, the way he's cursing at local politicians, as if he owns
1: them. There's a fun fact about it. Like, one of those men on the board that he's arguing with, the one who's played by Dick Summers, is a character inspired by Harry Reid, the real-life politician who went on to become, you know, the longtime senator, the Senate majority leader of the Democratic Party during the, the Obama years. Harry Reid, by the way, says they never saw this movie. But what we see his, you know, on-screen counterpart, very heavily fictionalized, I believe, on-screen counterpart do in Casino, what Dick Summers does is he he alone manages to get all of the good parts of Vegas. He gets the rooms, he gets the fun, he gets the girls, and he's the one who doesn't have to pay for the fun of Vegas in any form because he is, you know, a white bread kind of waspy guy who knows how to fit inside of this system. The Vegas hangover falls on everybody else. Like, he's the ultimate winner.
0: This slap on the wrist by regulators? This doesn't stop Sam Rothstein, and it didn't stop the real-life character he's based on either, Frank Rosenthal. You'd think after all that, Frank would keep a low profile, but that wasn't the vibe of Vegas. Vegas accepted Frank for being exactly himself. So Frank got a new title, Head of Entertainment. Typical, right? And he gets his own TV show, too. Perfect.
2: Live! From the fabulous jubilation, world-famous discotheque supper club in the heart of the entertainment capital of the world, Las
0: Vegas, Nevada. A Frank Rosenthal Show. He has people like O.J. Simpson and Muhammad Ali on. Because who's going to say no to a guy like Frank?
3: You know, one of the most audacious examples of the mob uh uh being in the public eye in las vegas was when frank lefty rosenthal uh who was running the stardust hotel uh decided he wanted to have his own television talk show
2: and now the man who's operated four las vegas hotel casinos simultaneously the man sports illustrator fixes the country's greatest handicapper the man
0: frank rosenthal
3: and he uh, put together the show at the Stardust, and it was broadcast weekly. I believe they had an audience. They had he brought in all these guests.
2: Frank, were you not at the uh, Young Norton fight? Uh, yeah, was I was there. Frank
3: Sinatra came and did an
2: interview. I had to go do the show. We, you know, I also we had- bet on the wrong guy. Did you?
3: Yeah. OJ Simpson came and did an interview. This was because of Rosenthal's clout, right? He was a mob guy. And he was able to say to Frank Sinatra, Hey, you need to come on my show, or, you know, and, and he would come. And OJ Simpson was another example. This is before everything went crazy with him. And uh, he was a huge celebrity. Uh, and, and he came on the show. Many, many other uh, entertainers, particularly, were on this show.
0: But let's just say Jeff wasn't a fan.
3: It was a horrible show. Frank Rosenthal was the worst host of a talk show that ever existed.
2: We had Muhammad Ali over here that night. He came right over to the show, and he thought that Young had won the decision.
0: Yeah, you heard that right. He messed up Muhammad Ali's name. Like, how? What? But even though, according to most anyone with eyes and ears, it was a horrible show, it gave Frank Rosenthal the confidence and platform to prove that he was more than a big, bad mobster.
3: He did not want to be perceived as someone who was an undesirable in our community. And so he decided to create this TV show largely to to humanize himself and to make him look like a a mainstream individual.
0: But that didn't work.
3: Ultimately, Frank Rosenthal was placed into the Black Book, uh, which is Nevada's list of undesirables who are not allowed to enter casinos. People remember the show. They watched it because a lot of big celebrities came on and they wanted to see him. It's inconceivable to me that that could have happened in any other city but Las Vegas, that some television network would think, it's okay, let's go ahead and put Frank Rosenthal's show on the air.
0: This brazen acceptance of Frank in Vegas, it really speaks to the connection the mob built in the community, that folks were able to turn a blind eye to a little corruption. And contrary to Sam's hopes of Vegas, of it being a morality car wash that could wash away your sins, His past caught up with him and with the real Sam Rothstein, Frank Rosenthal. Frank survived the bombing, yet that happened. Not long after, he'd be banned from Vegas, placed in the little black book.
1: What I think is interesting about Casino is that this is a movie where the mob doesn't win. You know, as much as we see the mob in charge of the movie from the beginning— Honestly, the way that you can read Casino is that the mob guys are kind of no better than the tourists that they're trying to scam. You know, over the course of the movie, they get to come in, they get to have their fun, they make a little money, and they spend a little money, and they make some memories. But then they get ushered out of the door because the real bosses want to take charge. The real bosses being, you know, the bankers and the corporations and the conglomerates and the senators. I mean, the mafia in this movie is even told by one of the elected officials, you know, you are all just our guests, but you are acting like you are home.
2: Mr. Rothstein, your people never will understand the way it works out here. You're all just our guests, but you act like you're at home. Let me tell you something, partner. You ain't home.
0: And even though the Sam Rothsteins and Frank Rosenthal's of the world ultimately were rejected from the paradise they built, there's still a little mob in Vegas. Here's Amy.
1: But yeah, that question of, like, who gets to call Vegas home? I mean, there is an interesting answer to that. You know, like, Vegas is a place where, yeah, like, Sam and Nikki build homes. You know, Sam's being, like, much more opulent. They never get to stay there at the end of the film. But you know who did it? I find this really interesting. There is a defense lawyer named Oscar Goodman. Like, he used to be the defense lawyer for the mob.
0: He defended the real Sam and Nikki in court, plus big names like Meyer Lansky. He even makes a cameo in Casino, playing himself. He's holding a bunch of books and standing behind Robert De Niro in that commission hearing scene. Just because his client got banned from Vegas didn't mean Oscar did.
1: And this guy, Oscar Goodman, using kind of like his connections and fame and sort of beloved vibe that he got from being like the mafia lawyer, becomes elected mayor of Las Vegas. So he, this mafia defensler, I guess, gets to call Las Vegas home.
0: You can't fuck with Uncle Osky as a girl I once dated said. So although we know that Vegas is controlled by conglomerates now, you gotta imagine there's some, what would you say, simpatico still here.
1: I mean, not only did he get elected mayor for like three terms, he was like hugely popular. He got reelected with like 85% of the vote And when he had to step down because of term limits, his wife ran for mayor and she is still mayor. So you could say that like this one family, the family that defends the mob, the defenders of the mob, they are home in Vegas because they've been running the city for over two decades.
0: To this day, the period, Sam and Frank's period, is looked back on fondly by many. The mob's still clearly part of the city's DNA. And in true Vegas spirit, you gotta make a dime off it.
1: By like the end of the decade, everybody in the movies is like going to Las Vegas, you know, Austin Powers and the Flintstones and the Griswolds and Beavis and Butthead. And so it tips off what I would say is like this mainstreamification of Vegas as a family place, as a place that has in the last like two decades opened up things like the mob experience and like the mafia museum and places where... You can go and pretend to be a gangster for a day as like gangsters, you know, yell at you in like hologram form, but they're like trying to use the mafia now as a selling point to make people go to Vegas. And when they're there, they're staying in like these new builds run by the bankers and the CEOs who kind of ran everybody in casino out of town. It's really ironic, you know, where this movie winds up finding its foothold in Vegas history.
0: Mob tourism is a thing.
3: There's this idea that if you come to Las Vegas and you're sitting at a bar or you're sitting in a lounge, that the, that the guy at the next table might be a mobster. You know, there's a little bit of danger there. It's almost like a form of danger terrorism.
0: Frank Rosenthal survived his bombing, but his casinos didn't. All those hotels, for the most part, were destroyed, imploded. You can Google it, it's on YouTube. Ready, aim, fire!
1: That's what I think is so interesting about the ending of Casino, is that it ends with the Mafia not owning anything. None, nobody owns a piece of Vegas at the end. You know, they've just sort of frittered away this time in you know, the town that they say is paradise. But Vegas turns out to not be paradise. It's really just sort of this limbo area between, like, back home and where they wind up at the end of the film, which is, like, jail, hell, or San Diego.
0: The movie takes place at this pivotal point in the city's history— As the mob is pushed out, banned from running casinos, you see B-roll of all these glitzy hotels collapsing into rubble. It's a scene you wouldn't see in another mob movie because Vegas isn't Boston or New York. Like the elected officials told Sam, he's just a guest here. In Vegas, tomorrow is never promised. Someone bigger or better can replace you, even if you're Sam Rothstein. Next time on Spectacle. We take a look at a part of Vegas history that many wish was in the rearview mirror. While mobsters were getting rich and finding their place, Las Vegas segregated an entire community. The Strip welcomed whites only.
1: Those casinos were not integrated. So those entertainers were Black. They could not live in those casinos. They had to live in boarding houses on the west side, and they had to enter the back doors. They could not enter the front door of the sands, the Desert end. They had to walk into the back door through the kitchen to get to the stages. This was segregation in America.
0: Black people were forced to live on the west side of Las Vegas, away from the Strip. West
3: Side grew and became the heart of of the African-American, the Black community in the early
0: 1940s. That's next time on Spectacle. Spectacle Las Vegas is a production of Neon Home Media. The show is hosted by yours truly. It was produced by Navani Otero. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Spectacle's senior producer is Joanna Clay. Our associate editor is Stephanie Serrano. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Original music by Hans Dale Su. And special thanks to Tanner Robbins, Vikram Patel, Shara Morris, Odelia Rubin, Chloe Chobel, and Catherine St. Louis. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spectacle underscore pod. I'm Brent Holmes. Y'all come back now, you hear? Spectacle Las Vegas is brought to you from the inside of a shallow grave in the desert.